couple of years ago, we were talking about qualifications for elder and there being a need uh, uh, apt to teach. So I uh, mentioned in passing to Colin that I had a uh, sermon always prepared in my back pocket. Wednesday night at, uh, at session, he was moderating as usual and uh, was clearly ill at 6 o'clock. By 9 o'clock, he had no voice. Thursday morning, I got a text about that sermon in your back pocket. When I first had mentioned it, we had Alex and John and Colin. I was on safe territory. <laughs> I am thrilled I told him to do it. To my wife, then, I may have used words like, oh, no, what have I done? <laughs> but I'm thrilled to be able to do this, so we will keep Colin and Mary, who both have bronchitis, in our prayers. Having not done this before, I will try to keep this just under two hours. Is that right? <laughs> You're welcome. So let's get this started. My daddy set me up. He tricked me. I was shamed. When I was five years old, I got something for Christmas that I actually wanted. It was a joyful occasion. I immediately ran up to my mother and gave her a great big hug. And I ran up to my father to do the same, but was stopped dead in my tracks with the universal symbol of don't move. He then changed the position of his hand, holding it out as if to shake mine. Men do not hug. Men shake hands, he stated flatly. I recall the confusion I felt at that moment, caught, shamed for who I was, guilt for what I did. After all, I just wanted what men were not allowed to want, and I got caught in the middle of it. Exposed. Turn with me to the text on page 6 of your bulletins, or to the book of Isaiah if you brought your Bible, to chapter 6, and we'll read through verse 8. Young Christians, young disciples, we are going to talk a little bit about angels with a special job. I want you to think about what they do and what happens when we do the same. This is the gospel of Jesus this morning, given to Isaiah, thus given to the church of all ages, thus given to us this morning. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. <clears throat> and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to the other, saying, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the thresholds of the thresh and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house 
was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our guide will stand forever. Let's pray and invite the Lord's presence into this place as we lift him up and expound from his word. Almighty God, it is of you we speak, and your story we magnify this morning. You are indeed worthy of the honor and thanks for who you are and what you have done for us and to us and through us. Speak, Lord, and open our ears that we might hear and we will give you the praise and glory now and evermore. Through Jesus and the Spirit, amen. Please be seated. First point, the God who invented time is the God of timing. Why does God do what he does when he does it? Have you ever wondered why God would have allowed your abuser to get away with it? Or even let them hurt you in the first place? Where was God when you were being bullied? When your parents divorced? When you were being humiliated? Or failed. I think that when we widen our perspective from the event to the environment, we can begin to develop clarity. Events never occur in a vacuum. Actions do not take place in a void. Context is everything. Reality in the hands of a sovereign God is our friend. In other words, God is always up to something. And for his redeemed people, his children, he is always up to something good. So, why now for Isaiah? What was the context of him seeing the second person of the Trinity, according to the Gospel of John, on his throne? Why would God, at this juncture, transport Isaiah to the celestial throne room? What was happening in Uzziah's life leading to death that would reveal this context? Well, we learned this about this king in 2 Chronicles 26. So let me share a few passages and some history to help you gain insight into God's plan for Isaiah's story. 
And we're told the following. And all of the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. So, he became amazingly mighty. But, it goes on to say, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor, and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him and behold, he was leprous in his forehead and they rushed him out quickly. (laughs) And he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. And being a leper, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. So there's the context. Now let's unpack some of this before looking back at Isaiah. First question when reading this passage would be, what's leprosy? Secondly, why would God choose leprosy? of all things, to inflict Uzziah. Third, what in the world does that have to do with God's timing in revealing himself to Isaiah? Excellent question. So glad you asked. Leprosy, or Hansen's disease, is a neurological disease that kills the nerve ending. You therefore won't feel if you have an infection and it takes over. Little by little, your nerve endings and then your appendages. Now, although the absence of pain might sound merciful, especially in the middle of the night when you're walking out to the kitchen to get that glass of water and you stub your little toe on that end table yet again, It's really not merciful. Pain is a necessary and vital component to knowing that there's something wrong with our bodies. Without pain, we are ignorant, and this is decidedly not bliss. Infections to fingers and toes and noses causes them to fall off to those who are lepers. 
And in Uzziah's time, and even in Jesus' day, someone with leprosy had to walk down the street with a bell, exclaiming, unclean, unclean. So what do we know this far? Lepers were ceremonially unclean, barred from temple worship. Leprosy is the absence of pain. King Uzziah, through prideful worship, got leprosy, destroying his ability to feel. And getting it on his forehead disallowed him to feel and probably even wear his crown, the symbol of his pride. There's the context. Pride or false worship equals a lack of pain. Denial. Let's now peer into Isaiah's reality to see if there's a dovetailing of stories. And this brings us to our second point. Know God, know yourself in that order. A little while after my handshake incident, I went into the first grade. Mrs. Ernst was my teacher, and man, did I love me some Mrs. Ernst. She took no guff, but she was soft and warm and kind One day she went out of the room, leaving us unattended. We crumpled up notebook paper from the big chief notebooks. Remember the yellow with the green lines? We started crumpling it up, and we threw these paper balls at one another. When she re-entered the room, she was not pleased. Who did this? She sternly inquired. If you were involved in these shenanigans, I learned a new word that day, shenanigans, Raise your hand. And everyone in the room raised their hand. Except for one little boy over in the corner. Defiantly, he kept his hands at his side. You see, he had made a covenant with himself earlier that year, a vow that no one would ever, ever catch or shame him again. He, me, in self-exaltation, became self-protective, safe. Why would we hesitate in knowing ourselves, let alone sharing the suffering, the sorrow, the shame of our stories? Because I would submit, we see it as worthless. Feeling guilt and regret and have therefore developed the narrative of, I've got this, I can fix this. And even if we can't, we want to at least look like we do. 1 John 1, 7 states, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. In other words, if you're not living an exposed life, you are decidedly not having fellowship. 
The context of 1 John 1 is sin and fellowship. By living exposed, acknowledging your sin, you actually also get more of Jesus. Because it goes on to say, with that kind of authenticity, that kind of transparency, in that fellowship, quote, the blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. It is a means of grace. The self-protective, self-exaltive narrative demands that we look good even if we can't be good. The redemptive narrative, however, allows, no, insists that I'm a mess. Period. I'm working on ideas for a few books, and there was a book written back in the 70s. Some here might remember it. It was the beginning of the self-help movement, the psychobabble movement, called I'm Okay, You're Okay. Recall that? I hated that book. But the title gave me an idea. The working title of the book I'm working on now I'm not okay, you're not okay, and that's okay. Brothers and sisters, God loves him a good mess. So is it worthless? Oh, contraire. God takes that sin, sorrow, and shame and actually uses it to his glory and our good in that order. And let's examine how he might accomplish this scandalous work. Isaiah saw Yahweh on that throne, high and lifted up in all his majestic splendor. The angels, seraphim, surrounded him, singing glory to his name. Holy, holy, holy. This is the only attribute, by the way, of God's character ever mentioned in triplicate. Absolute and complete righteousness. Glory. The angels had six wings, two-thirds of which were used in worship, one-third used in work. And interesting to note, the word Sarah, the beginning of seraph for seraphim, which is plural, means flame, fire. These beings were literally burning up in the presence of God, still are, exclaiming glory, words of glory, marvelous, worshipful imagery. So Isaiah sees this, and he says, Cool. This is neat. God, old buddy, old pal. No, no, not even close. Woe is me. That is where he goes. Woe is onomatopoeia. Remember that word from high school English? 
It's from poetry. It's a word that has the sound of the action within the word itself. Buzzing of the bee is onomatopoeia. Woe is the sound of a low guttural groaning. It is expressed by the one who is deeply hopeless and helpless. It's what one experiences in the existential reality of deep and profound loss. In this version, the ESV, Isaiah says he's ruined. Some translations, I am undone. Neither, in my not-so-humble opinion, is a good translation. It's the idea of being torn molecule by molecule apart. It's what happens to the darkness when the light is turned on. Isaiah has been transported to the heavenly throne room and is allowed to see God as he truly is. And that, that will then expose him to see who he really is. And he definitely does not like what he sees. I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. You know, just to speculate for a minute, I'm thinking that ten minutes before this vision of transcendence occurs, Isaiah thought he was probably a pretty good guy. I'm as good as the next guy, which is probably true, but it's not a great thing. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Isaiah had a problem with his dirty mouth, but it only revealed the real problem was his depraved heart. God was healing Isaiah of spiritual leprosy. He could now feel the pain of his sin as the point of his faithlessness was stabbing him. True worship must expose deeply. Isaiah's lack of existential godly sorrow over his own failure to reflect Trinitarian glory was being laid bare by God. It hurt. Worship is not about feeling good. It's not about our happiness. It's about knowing God. And scripture tells us that it is the kindness of God that takes us there. A.W. Tozer once said, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly unless he has hurt him deeply. My father exposed me. He hurt me. He abused me. But, and hear this well, My father was not then, nor is he now, my real problem. My wounds are deep, to be sure. But my sin is deeper still. As many of you know my story, I spent many years attempting to transition into a female. I was 
pursuing transgender uh, reassignment surgery as living as a transgendered person. I lived in a gay relationship. I'm on the spectrum of reactive attachment disorder. I'm bipolar. I was a drug abuser, an alcoholic. I'm a mess. I am now a being redeemed mess. And I cannot blame my father. When I committed not to ever feel shame or exposure again, I was believing my problem was my father or any others that would hurt me. And all I had to do was self-protect. That was a lie. My problem was and still is my depraved heart, which demanded pain-free living from others. I was trying to exist to receive from others rather than give to others. I learned how to figure out the mood of my father, the bully, quickly. Oh, there were other bullies, too, whom I understood quickly to protect myself. If they liked humor, I'd be the class clown. If niceness functioned, I'd be charming. Smart, Mr. Intelligentsia. Oh, I got very good at reading people before they knew what hit them. A chameleon, that was me. I could manipulate anybody after years of practice to get what I believed I needed most. Safety, comfort, security. Third point. Reconciliation informs redemption. Verse 6, the brilliant flaming angel took with tongs from the altar a burning coal. It was touched to the focused problem area, his mouth. Coals from the altar, altar where animals are burned as an offering. This is the locus of salvation on the altar. Altars, atonement takes place here. As an aside... Don't you find it interesting that an, a being made of fire would need a pair of tongs to remove a coal? I think what's going on here is that the coal from that altar represents the gospel. And there is no gospel for an angelic being. They have to learn about it. They get to learn about it by watching us and its effect on humanity. They don't get the gospel because they don't get the gospel. At any rate, Isaiah's mouth was touched, his heart was cleansed, his guilt removed, and atonement received. God will always, without fail, expose the real problem and then, and only then, deal with the deepest problem. The bad news is, is that the good news is worse. And we fight that tooth and nail. We have no right for guilt. Guilt is nothing more than a demand for control as, I got this, I can fix this, I'll try harder, I'll turn over a new leaf, white-knuckle it to succeed. No. If there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ, 
Guilt is foreboding. Why? How? It's like this. God wants us honest with our stories so he can reveal his power in them. When I am weak, God displays his power. God writes pain into our stories that he might redeem our stories, that he might use our stories to tell his Isaiah had a depraved heart which informed his dirty mouth. God not only saved him from himself by exposing his mouth, he redeemed him by using his mouth. Isaiah was a prophet. He spoke truth to the people. God used that formerly dirty mouth to preach truth, God's truth. Redemption gives stories value, but no guarantee on how that value, how that story gets used. Isaiah had to tell the people of unclean lips they would neither see nor hear. They would continue to live in their faithlessness. We may never know why we are being reconciled or redeemed, except that it's for his glory. And that needs to be good enough. I learned how to sinfully manipulate others to do for me at their expense. Well, that is the very definition of lust. Eyes, flesh, pride. It is not love. I learned how to read people. Well, Then I was brought to faith. I was exposed to my sin. My flesh got revealed. The gospel was applied. How does God redeem me? Well, for starters, what do I do for a living? As a biblical counselor, as a therapist, I read people. Only now, after God working on my heart for a time, I get to read them for their good at my expense. No, I'm not saying I'm some psychic or other such nonsense. But someone can walk into my office, walk through my door, and by the time they sit down on my couch, I get it. I sense what's going on with them. Maybe not the particulars, but I, but I sense their story. You see, God took my sinful strategy of self-protection and in redeeming it, has turned it into a spiritual gift, the gift of discernment. I get to manipulate for Jesus' sake. No, no, not really. But I get to glimpse below the waterline of their personalities and look behind the curtain of their I-got-this mentality to offer them the burning coals of grace. Fourth and last point, share it to the glory of God, not pragmatically. Life as it is, is not life as it was intended to be. Yet God is Yahweh, meaning he is there for us. God is love, meaning he is good to us. 
And God is sovereign, meaning He is in control over us. Hebrews 11.6 tells us, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. Forever who would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. That He exists how? Well, as Yahweh, love and sovereign for starters... Rather than being self-protective and self-exaltive, be exposed by grace. Enter your story. Depraved as it is, by faith that God is worth it, and then engage that story through repentance. And then, and only then, embrace that story because it's proof you have been embraced by the author of that story, of your story. Live out your redemption in the lives of others. We being the contextualization of the gospel, just like Isaiah was, get to use our stories redeemed in the lives of others. He made us better off than if that sin, sorrow, and shame had never occurred in the first place. And he used our very sin to do it. This is how he sets us up to do the good works prepared before time began. Tim Keller said, Your life is not a series of random events. Your family background, education, and life experiences, even the most painful ones, all equip you to do some work that no one else can do. That is Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So live and love from that incredibly messy place as it is now holy ground, sacred space. God has shown up there and has given you his name, your shame-filled, sin-soaked story is no match for God's purposes. Do not hide that light under a bushel. It's not your light to hide. The route to life is death. The joy we seek is available, after all, when we die to our right to find it in our way and in our timing. Because it's about redemption over resolution. We don't fix it. We fixate on Jesus, the author of our story. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, etc. is possible when he has exposed us to where we attempt to find that fruit apart from him. And so we get to repent. Go the other direction by his grace. If we are therefore not living in a constant state of painful disappointment in our sin and the sin of others against us, leading to deepened dependency upon God, a God who does not give bad gifts to his children, leading to joy, we are not living by faith. 
my heavenly father tricked me. He set me up in love. He used my shame to expose my thirst and he gave and gives value to my story. And if you're a child of his, he's doing likewise to you. And if you're not, then use this opportunity to come to him for that embrace, reconciliation, and value, redemption. Let's pray. Oh, blessed Redeemer who saw our sin, shame, and sorrow, and rather than take it out of the way as if it threatened you, you said to your and our enemy, I see your evil and I raise it a redemption. Watch me work. Actually, using it to my glory and their good, you lose. So in your timing, you reach down to intersect your story of reconciliation and redemption with our story of depravity and desperation. You have made us reflectors of glory once again, thus exposing our fig leaves and filthy rags, and we praise you for that. In the name of Jesus, through the Spirit. Amen.